Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10, this is God's inspired word from the New Testament. God's word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, but a body have you prepared for me. But in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So do you have a good memory? Well, our memories are pretty fickle and bizarre things. That is, we often struggle to remember what we want or need to remember. We have to rely on a daily planner for meetings and work. Phone notifications tell us where to be and when. If the birthday isn't marked on the calendar, you'll miss it. And without notes or a study guide, your mind goes blank on the test. And yet then there are the other things that you want to forget. That embarrassing moment that haunts you with shame, but you just can't get it out of your head. You suffered some trauma, and every time it pops into your mind, you're afflicted all over again. In many ways, PTSD is an overactive memory. Thus, bad memories are a major cause of our insomnia. Yeah, this it can be the absurdity of our memories that practically fight against us. What needs to be remembered is forgotten, and those things that you desperately want to forget, you cannot. Well, memory also plays a critical role in our spiritual life in a relationship with God. And yet where we fail to control our memories well, our Lord knows exactly what to remember and what to forget for your everlasting good. So at the end of chapter 9, two heavenly blessings were set before us. One, Christ died once to bear away our many sins. Two, Jesus is coming a second time, not for sin, but for salvation. And these two benefits encapsulate our whole Christian life. Presently, our atonement is finished and perfect in Christ, and yet we wait faithfully for the glorious dawn of the resurrection. And so wonderful are these 
bookends of our redemption, the author of Hebrews wants to tease them out some more. Kind of like a delicious piece of chocolate, he keeps these truths in our mouth to savor a bit, bit longer. Thus, he now adds, the law was a shadow of the good things to come. Now, these coming goods, of course, include both Christ's finished work on the cross and our future Sabbath rest, as well as everything in between. They include all the gifts of God within the new covenant and in heaven, from Jesus' priesthood to forgiveness, adoption, and so on. And yet the law shadowed them, which means it foreshadowed them prophetically all these goods. Yes, Hebrews has not been shy about listing off the limits, the imperfections, and the inabilities of the law. But this is a positive of the law. For the law to be a shadow of the new covenant goods means it revealed them, foretold, and showcased them. The law teaches us about the New Testament. If you want to learn more about Christ, his death, and the new covenant, the law is a sort of encyclopedia for greater understanding and perception. The laws of Leviticus are kind of like a microscope to zoom in on the cross of Christ. This is a huge benefit of the law. However, shadows are not known for their precision. They can be a touch fuzzy and one-dimensional. Particularly, a shadow is not the real deal. Your shadow represents you, but it isn't you. Hence, the law is not the true form of the new covenant goods. The law teaches us about these heavenly blessings. It foreshadowed them, but it is not the genuine article. Thus, there can be no confusing the law with the new covenant. You can't go back to the law and expect true blessings. It just can't be done. And with this, the positives of the law quickly slip back into some of its negatives. The law is a fine teacher, but it's not the reality. And two limits of the law are given for us. One, under the law, the same sacrifices were offered. This underscores the character of the Mosaic sacrifices, namely that they were animal. Cows, goats, and sheep were burned upon the altar with the accompaniments of grain and wine. This is a major shadowy limit of the law for it called for animal offerings. And secondly, the beasts were sacrificed yearly and continually. Every day, two lambs were burned. Every pilgrim feast, like Passover or Sukkot, a great host of animals were slaughtered. And particularly, every fall during the Day of Atonement, bulls and goats were shed uh, their blood to purify the holy places of the tabernacle. The stream of animal blood in the tabernacle was a veritable river. And so these are the two deficiencies of the law, animal sacrifices and endless repetition. And these are major shortcomings because of what they could not accomplish. They are flaws due to their ineffectiveness. Namely, they could not perfect those who draw near. The people who came near to worship needed perfecting. 
And as we've seen, this perfecting was the purifying of their conscience, the earning of actual forgiveness, and giving them free access to God. Yet, the animal blood, even by the drumful, could not perfect sinful humans. Not Israel of old, and not us. Now, with different language, Hebrews made this, Hebrews has made this point before, so why does he restate it again? Well, this indicates how it is a struggle for these saints to grasp this truth. The saints of this epistle who are tempted to go back to the law and back to the temple are having a hard time accepting this truth. For them, animal blood seems plenty effective. Besides, in Leviticus, it regularly states that the people were forgiven due to animal sacrifice. Thus, Hebrews must press this point home strongly, and so he continues to reason with the saints. As he asks next, otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. Now, here he posits a hypothetical. Namely, if the Old Testament sacrifices were able to perfect the people, then they would have stopped. Note that effectiveness is connected to frequency. Ability and repetition go hand in hand. If something can perfect, it is one and done. If it cannot perfect, it's done over and over again. Perfection is singular. Imperfection is repeated. And in this way, the Old Testament testifies against itself. That is, it is an indisputable fact that the law offered endless sacrifices. And if the law called for many sacrifices, then this was the law's own way of saying that its offerings were not able to make the people holy. This is the law's own self-awareness that it was a shadow and not the reality. Hence, the frequency of the sacrifices was a testimony that they could not effectively make the people perfect. And he gives further proof of this with another unrealized hypothetical. Namely, he says, if the animal sacrifices could perfect the people, then the worshiper would no longer have a sinful conscience. Now, verse 2 reads, consciousness of sin, but this word is better understood as the conscience of sin. For our conscience has been a key point throughout the book of Hebrews. Also, consciousness refers to awareness. To have no consciousness of sin would mean that you became oblivious that you ever sinned in the first place, as if forgiveness wiped your mind. But this is not taught in scripture anywhere. Rather, a sinful conscience is a guilty one, weighed down by shame and the terror of judgment. Therefore, if the law could perfect the conscience, then it would have purified the worshiper from his evil or sinful conscience, freeing him from guilt and the punishment. Now, of course, the sacrifices of the law could not do this, and thus it offered more and more animals. And being unable to purify our guilty conscience, these sacrifices then, as Hebrews says next, became a reminder of sin. And this reminder 
is not a casual thing, but it's actually a technical one drawn from the Old Testament. For the author pulls this word for remembering from a specific type of offering called the memorial offering. And such memorial offerings of the Old Testament were not just for humans, but actually for God as well. That is, the memorial offering reminded God of the people's status or state, and here it reminded them that they were guilty sinners. And to remind God that you are a sinner is the last thing you want. For as Yahweh says several times throughout the Old Testament, he says, I will remember their sins and I will punish them. The Lord's remembering equaled your judgment. Thus the sacrifices made God recall your iniquities, and so they kept judgment alive. And this memorial contrasts with not having a sinful conscience. That is, a purified conscience means you are forgiven and not in the state of guilt. The law, though, was not able to do this, and so rather it reminded God of your sin, which is the meaning of the next line in verse 4. Note it says, It is impossible impossible for bull and goat blood to take away sins. Now, to bear sin is the Old Testament idiom for forgiveness. Thus, it is not possible for animal blood to earn for you pardon. And if it cannot forgive sin, then it is a reminder that you're still a sinner. In this way, the law and its sacrifices were kind of like bad soap. When you put poor detergent on a stain, it will not remove the stain, and you're doubly frustrated with your stained shirt. And if the stain will not come out, you're more likely to trash it. So also, the Old Testament sacrificial blood was poured out before God to remove the people's sin. The blood could not wash away the sin pollution, and so it ended up reminding the Lord of their guilt deserving wrath. And this, if you think about it, is a rather frightful prospect. All those repeated sacrifices gained no true forgiveness and instead reminded God that you were terribly guilty deserving judgment. Talk about memory going in the wrong direction. As sinners, we need the Lord to forget our transgressions. A sacrifice is brought for pardon, but animals cannot do this. Thus, the Lord got a double reminder of your sin. In this way, animal sacrifices kept the people under their sin and sealed for judgment, which is kind of the opposite of atonement and salvation. How then does one escape this system of ineffectual blood and constant reminders that you deserve punishment? Well, thankfully, the law was only a shadow and not the real deal. Thus, Hebrews now shifts to focus on the reality. And he does so by quoting the Old Testament. The law was not the reality, but it testified to it. And so this quote speaks to the genuine article. Now he cites for us a few verses from Psalm 40, which he actually puts on the lips of Christ. When Christ came into the world, 
when our, our incarnate Lord spoke this psalm. Now, Psalm 40 is one of David, and since David is a regular type of Christ, this psalm naturally applies to Jesus. And this psalm is a prayer. It's a dialogue between the Son and the Father. Yeah, this psalm gives us a window into the intra-Trinitarian communication. The Father and the Son here are conversing. But what's this psalm about? Well, it is a thank-offering song, which means that the psalmist is thanking God for answering his prayer for deliverance. Thus, verse 1 says that God heard his cry. And yet, what was the distress of the psalmist? It was death. Note it says that the Lord drew him up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. These are terms for Sheol. Hence, the psalmist had one foot in the grave. He was a hair's breadth away from expiring. God then brought him back from death. He saved his life. This is salvation from death. And what did the Lord require of the psalmist for this death rescue? Well, these are the verses that Hebrews quotes. It says, the Lord did not desire sacrifice or offering. He was not pleased with burnt or sin offerings. To pluck the psalmist from the dungeon of Sheol, the Lord did not ask for, nor would he accept animal sacrifices. No animals were prescribed here. Thus, he lists four types of sacrifices to make clear that none were called for by God. It matters not what animal was killed or what type of sacrifice was offered. The Lord was not interested in any of them. Instead, Yahweh called for something else. He required a different thing, which is stated here as, He prepared a body for me. The Father prepared a body for Jesus. This is what he wanted, and not some animal blood. Yet what does this line mean? Well, you might have noticed that there's a difference between the quote of Hebrews and the text of Psalm 40. The Hebrew of the psalm says literally, you have given me an open ear. How, though, do we get from an open ear, Psalm 40, to a prepared body in Hebrews 10? Well, these are synonymous metaphors for whole obedience. The ear is the organ of listening and so obedience. A closed ear is one of disobedience and arrogance, but an open ear is eager and ready to comply. Likewise, the body can refer to the whole self in readiness to obey. A body prepared for the Lord is one that is willing to lay down its life in obedience and devotion to God. Therefore, to deliver the psalmist from death, God required no animal sacrifice, but whole body obedience. He would not accept vicarious offering, but the Lord demanded personal and whole devotion. And this is what the psalmist happily offers. Thus he says next, I have come to do your will. The psalmist's purpose and commitment was total obedience. 
the Lord called for his entire body, and the psalmist willingly offers his whole body. And the language here fits ideally the situation of Christ. I have come. This refers to the incarnation, when Jesus came into the world with a human body. So, our Lord's purpose in becoming human was for him to fulfill the will of the Father. This sounds a lot like Jesus in John's Gospel. Moreover, this was written in the scroll about Jesus, which encompasses both predestination and provident, uh, prophecy. Even the covenant of redemption is echoed here. Note that God ordained that Jesus had to obey as a man, and he foretold this in the book, the book of eternity and in the Old Testament. Thus sealed in eternity past, written in the Old Testament, the Father decreed that the Son had to obey his will. The Son came into the world then to to fulfill the divine plan. And by such bodily obedience, the Son would be delivered from Sheol. And the author makes two applications from this psalm spoken by our Lord. One, to rescue from death, God did not want animal sacrifice. The law commanded uh, such sacrifices, but the Father didn't require them in this matter. The law prescribed sacrifices that had a purpose, they were shadows, but these were of no use in this deliverance from death. Second, Christ came for full obedience. He fulfilled the whole law, the whole will of the Father. Thus, the contrast is between a substitutionary animal death and the personal obedience of Christ. For Jesus, he could not let an animal take his place, but he had to do it himself. Thus, what is the crowning element of Christ's obedience? Well, verse 10 Jesus offered his body once for all. The body that was prepared was Jesus laying down his life in devotion. It was his willing self-sacrifice. And so the superiority of Christ is not just obedience over sacrifice, but more so it is self-sacrifice over animal offering. The personal death of Jesus With ideal fealty, this is what the Father required, and it is what far surpassed the ineffectual death of cows and goats. Indeed, where the ongoing animal offerings were useless useless to protect us, perfect us, look at the powerful fruits that Christ's offered body accomplished. First, it says he does away with the first to establish the second. Now here, first refers to the law covenant with its endless animal deaths. And the second is a new covenant of better things. Thus we get a link back to chapter 2. If sacrifice was effective, it would no longer be offered. The repeated Old Testament sacrifices testified to their inability. Yet Christ's death was potent. It actually accomplished its, its purpose. And so the effective death of Christ puts an end to the first covenant. 
It closes the chapter on the law, and it lays to rest that entire practice of animal sacrifice. Because Christ died and came and died, the sacrifices are no longer for us. Jesus' offered body, though, yields another fruit. Secondly, by his death, according to the will of the Father, we have been sanctified. Jesus' blood transformed you into a holy thing. His death sanctified you completely. And here, this sanctification does not refer to our growing in godliness throughout our pilgrim life. Rather, it is the objective work of Christ. Christ's sanctification of you means that by his blood, your conscience has been purified. Your sins are truly forgiven. Furthermore, it means that you are the Father's special possession, treasured and protected, and to be sanctified in Christ then, furthermore, opens up all the barriers to grant you full and up-close access to God. Yes, Jesus' sanctification transforms you from being a sinful thing to being a holy child of the Lord. And particularly, Christ making you holy covers you with the assurance that the Father no longer remembers your sin. Yes, in Christ, when you sin, this is not a reminder that God should judge you. No, instead, our sins are memorials that Christ died for all your transgressions, past and future. Being holy in Christ, Jesus then paid for all your depravity. And when we sin, Jesus' one death ensures that the Father will continually apply to you the mercy and grace of his Son. Hence, Christ's death To sanctify us makes the memory of God work perfectly for you. By Christ's blood, the Father forgives and forgets your sin. By the Son's obedience, the Father remembers Jesus' righteousness wrapped around you, clothed in the goodness of Christ. In Christ, sin and condemnation are no longer remembered for you. And your purification unto heavenly life is never forgotten. How lovely, how warm then is the memory of the Father for us in Christ. That he remembers only you in Christ and he's forgotten forgotten all your past sins. Moreover, being sanctified by grace, we now have full access to draw near to the throne of God and worship the Lord in joy. Thus, let us approach God's throne to, uh, as the sanctified to sing and praise his most glorious name and to receive from him his ever-present help and grace now, throughout all our pilgrim lives, and until he brings us to that undying land of heaven. When Christ comes a second time, not to deal with sin, but to bring us salvation for those who wait upon him. Thus, may we wait upon the Lord 
and glorify him now and forevermore. Amen.